Everybody. I hope you enjoyed our special last week, but this week we're back to learning about regular life in colonial times. Here's our first guest to tell you all about this week's episode. My name is Violet. I am from Indiana and I am eight years old. This week we are going to talk about colonial books. Reading is one of my very favorite things, so I'm so excited for this episode. What are your questions, Violet? How did they make books? Were there libraries in colonial times? What were the popular books back then? Those are great questions. Thanks, Violet. Thank you, Miss Amelia. Bye! You guys know how much I love hearing from people who lived during the colonial era. So let's hear from someone who loved reading and from someone who wanted to read but didn't know how. I'm Elijah Louie. I'm 18, and I'm from Texas. Thomas Jefferson drafted a Virginia Assembly Bill in the 1770s titled, A Bill for the More General Diffusion of Knowledge, that began. Those entrusted with power have, in time, and by slow operations, perverted it into tyranny, and has believed that the most effectual means of preventing this would be to illuminate, as far as practicable, the minds of the people at large. Of course, some people didn't want the people at large to be more educated. Ulida Iquana wrote that he had long wished to be able to read and write, and took every opportunity to gain instruction. He wrote, I had often seen my master and Dick employed in reading, and I had a great curiosity to talk to the books as I thought they did. I often had taken up a book and talked to it, and then put my ears to it when alone, in hopes that it would answer me. And I have been very much concerned when I found that it remains silent. The end. And now on to Violet's questions. Um, my name is uh, James David Moran. I'm the Vice President for Programs and Outreach at the American Antiquarian Society. The American Antiquarian Society is a learned society, which is uh, a group of people who are interested in a particular subject. And in our case, we're interested in uh, pre-20th century American history and culture. That is, everything that happened in this country before uh, 1900. We're also a research library, and in that case, we collect everything and anything printed in this country before 1900. Specifically, we uh, our main cutoff date is 1876. And we chose that date because the copyright laws change, and uh, by law, the, from, in, in 1876, by law, when things are copyrighted, the Library of Congress gets two copies of record um, for that copyrighted material. It's also the last full year of uh, a period in history called Reconstruction, which was part of the end of the Civil War. And it's also the, the year that we celebrated a 100 years of being an independent country. 
So for all of those reasons, it made sense to pick that year. But before 1876, we are interested in collecting everything and anything printed in what is now the United States and parts of Canada and the British West Indies. That's wonderful. What that means is, what, what, thank you. <laughs> what, what that means, we are uh, interested in uh, great works of literature. We're interested in important state papers, the papers of, of our federal and state governments. But we're also interested in um, really a kind of historic junk mail, the kinds of things that would be printed once and then, you know, read and then thrown away. Um, uh, things like um, uh, games or something that we collect. Uh, we collect uh, business papers like invoices and um, business cards and uh, advertisements. Um, uh, there was something called broadsides, which were printed and designed to be posted outside. They were kind of like posters posters are today, or if you look, sometimes you'll see um, a, a, a wanted uh, poster for a lost cat or dog or somebody looking to share a ride, and you'll see those posted at um, maybe a, a, a post office or even a, a drugstore or a supermarket today. Well, those are called broadsides, and we're interested in collecting those if they were printed before 1876. And as you might imagine, those are, can be very rare because they're not designed to be something that people would necessarily treasure. They're designed to be printed and, and consumed, that is, read and, and understood and then thrown away. Or they're posted outside and they're exposed to the weather and so that they, they, they just don't survive. But if they do survive, we're interested in them. We're, we collect them, we keep them forever, and we make them available for people to come and study them. Uh, and that's really what our, our, um, our mission is. We consider ourselves to be the library of record, the place where this material will live forever. I'm sure things like that tell you a lot about everyday life in those times and what was important to people. Exactly. And... Um, a big feature of our collection is it is something that really does help people understand how common people lived in the past. And that's something that historians and other scholars are particularly interested in today, is how did the common person live? The person who may not have necessarily left a long paper trail of their own writings, but uh, we still want to understand how do they live? How did the women and um, uh, men and children live in the past? And our collection can help them understand that. Well, that is wonderful. Um, well, so as for Violet's questions, in the colonial era, how how were books made? Well, books were made um, using uh, paper that was made from cotton rag. That is, uh, old clothes were actually broken down and made into uh, paper. And uh, that paper is a very, very uh, good paper and very, very um, sturdy paper. It's in many ways um, much better than a lot of the paper we use today. The paper we use today is often made from wood pulp, 
and that contains acid in it that will eventually destroy the paper. But cotton rag doesn't have that kind of acid. So it's a very good paper, but it's also uh, uh, more difficult and more expensive to make. And in the colonial period, particularly, paper was very expensive and um, um, uh, it was made here in, in uh, the colonies uh, in limited supply, but most of our paper was imported from Europe. Um, books were made, uh, printed on uh, hand presses and then bound together and uh then bound uh by uh, uh with with leather bindings um, uh there weren't a lot of uh books created in the colonial period there were some created in this country in the colonies in principally in new england and in new new york um, there weren't a lot of them created in uh, the southern colonies. Part of the reason for that is that they were hard to make, and they were expensive to make, and books are something that um, uh, are not perishable. They're not like food. Uh, if they're kept dry, they will last forever. And so most of our books came from England or Europe because they were, it was easier and cheaper to import them from uh, America, from Europe or England, than it was to create them here. Um, the first book, however, created in this country uh, was created in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in 1640, so that's really early, um, and that was uh, a book called The Whole Book of Bay Psalms, and it was created by the pilgrims to, uh, um, celebra to celebrate God in their, their worship, their Sunday worships, and they were actually reinterpreting the, the psalms um, uh, they went back to the original Greek and uh, re-translated uh, them. And so that is why that book was published here. Um, another important early book uh, in America was a, a version of the Bible printed in the language of the Algonquin Indians. And those, that, uh, those Indians lived in New England. And it was uh, so that the Indians could understand the Bible and come to understand and, and worship God in their own language. It was printed in that way both so that they could be preached to in their language, but many of these uh, uh, Native people learned to read and could also then uh, uh, read the Bible. There were um, uh, tribes of Indians who were converted to Christianity in Natick and in Framingham, and that Bible was pre uh, created by a reverend named John Elliot, who was an English minister, but it was actually printed by a Native American printer by the name of John Printer, and it was created in 1661, so again, very early books. Yeah. So you mentioned um, you know, how books are not perishable, and these are things that can be read over and over again. So were there libraries or ways that people could share books amongst each other? Well, there, there weren't libraries in the sense that we understand them. Um, the the concept of um, a public library is something that actually happens in the uh, 1800s. In the colonial period, wealthy people would own um, 
libraries, um, and they sometimes often would share them with people, um, but they wouldn't um, – they, they, we didn't have a kind of a public library system. That I think the first public library is in the 1830s. Um, there were learned societies, and we are a learned society. We were founded in 1812. But again, uh, our library was um, the reading room was open to the public in 1812. But um, mostly, it was individuals who joined the society who could gain access to the books. Um, uh, so, and, and, uh, there were schools, and schools would also have libraries at, at times, but they were more, uh, limited to the people going to that, to that, um, um, you know, to that school. At the same time, books were shared by people, you know, by friends and family members would would share books. There weren't a lot of books like we think of today, in the colonial period particularly, uh, although every family would have had a Bible, a family Bible, and um, every family would have also had a book that was a soft-bound, a paper book called an almanac. And these were published every year. They told of um, the the seasons. They they detailed when the moon rose and and set. Uh, they detailed when to plant crops. Um, they detailed the the signs of the the stars and the zodiac. And they also had other information in them um, that was important for people, like recipes, uh, medical uh, information. Um, sometimes they would they would list uh, holidays and and different weights and measures and that sort of thing. And these were essential books, uh, but they weren't they weren't like hardbound books. They were more like like a magazine or the old, today you can sometimes see old farmers almanacs and that's still the same uh, publication that I'm talking about now. Um, and most families would have those two things. The other thing a lot of people would have would be uh, uh, editions of either the plays of Shakespeare or um, classical works of um, poetry and mythology. Um, but again, the, there wouldn't be a whole lot of those in circulation. Only wealthy people would likely have them, but if if you if you had a book or your family had a book, you'd treasure it and you'd save it and you would share it with people um, and uh, you know really preserve it. So, were there anything like like popular books like we think of now? There, there were some. There were um, uh, one of the best-selling books uh, in the colonial period was a, a story of uh, Mary Rowlandson, who was captured uh, captured by the the uh, Indians in an Indian War, and she um, published her st- uh, the story of her captivity, and that became what was called uh, really essentially a bestseller in the uh, early 1700s. Um, uh, there were some publishing, there, there were some um, novels. Most of those were from England. Um, and again, um, I think the first published um, uh, 
American book uh, published by Benjamin Franklin was Pamela, which was a, a novel uh, by Samuel Richardson, who was an English author. But it was published, you know, republished here in the United States or, or in the colonies in 1741 by uh, Benjamin Franklin. Um, and again, that was a very popular book. So there were some novels, um, but most people read religious tracts, um, or as I said, classical uh, literature. And I know um, we're going to be getting to the American Revolution soon with the kids, and I know that that political tracts and political pamphlets become become awfully popular and become awfully important. Very, very popular, very, very important. Um, There are not a lot of printing presses at the time of the Revolution. There's about 40 of them. Most of them, again, are in urban centers, in city centers. And those city centers are also uh, around bodies of water, either on rivers or along the coast and in uh, in harbors. they, uh, a printer in this time period will print all kinds of things. He's like a, a job printer. He's kind of like a curry copier. So you could go to him and uh, ask him to print, um, you know, a handbill about um, a sale you're having or about um, things that you're selling in your store, for instance, <clears throat> and pay him some money or exchange goods and he would print it for you. That printer also likely will print a newspaper that's printed once a week and is sold by subscription. Um, And that subscription, that paper will come to you uh, with your mail. So you may be a subscriber to a paper that's published in Boston, but you live out in uh, the western part of Massachusetts. So you uh, you may be a subscriber to a newspaper, that is being published far from you, um, but that will that newspaper will be delivered by someone on a, a, a carrying the paper and the mails called a post rider, who will come and deliver it to you. Again, once you've read that paper, you'll share that with your friends and relatives. Um, it, it's a valuable piece of you know a valuable thing. And uh, even though the news may not be breaking in the way we understand it, if you haven't heard that news before, it's news to you. Mm-hmm. And so people will um, uh, read the papers over and over again. In addition to the newspapers, um, dur- particularly during the period of uh, the revolution when we are starting to disagree with uh, England, there are lots of publications called political pamphlets. And these, again, are like almanacs in that they're not bound in leather, but they are uh, printed with multiple pages and then stitched together with a, a paper cover. These are very, very popular. They um, are often uh, kind of like a online blog is today or a Facebook posting in that people will publish something and then someone else may publish another pamphlet refuting them or either agreeing with them or disagreeing with them. And in essence, there's like a, a dialogue, a conversation that happens in print. There were about 241 of these publications published from 16, 
from 1763 through 1776. Um, the most famous of these is one called Common Sense that was printed by Thomas, a man named Thomas Paine. It was published in uh, the winter of 1776, in January of 1776, and it argued for our independence from Great Britain. And it was enormously popular. It was, again, a bestseller. Um, Paine basically was a very good writer, but what he did is he wrote down what people were saying in taverns and in inns about the uh, discussions people were having about whether we should completely break from England or not. And it largely uh, helped us break from England. Uh, in July 4th of 1776, we uh, create and sign a Declaration of Independence, which is the beginning of our country as an uh, independent nation. And common sense, that pamphlet, had a lot to do with convincing people that we should do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the written word is very, very powerful. Very powerful. Very powerful indeed. And often um, the arguments and even sometimes the exact phrasing of a political pamphlet will also appear in a newspaper and vice versa. So this is kind of, it's kind of a little bit, again, like our Internet today, where things will be shared um, from one medium to another. And that is um, happening the same way, only it's happening by uh, people setting it, uh, setting type and, and printing, reprinting it over and over again in different media. Um, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the printing press and uh, the printers were an enormously influential uh, group of people and uh, in, in helping us uh, fight for our rights from England and ultimately in um, helping us declare our own independence. And that's why the freedom of the press is such an important element in our society today. Sure. And then when we talk about how powerful the written word is, one other thing I wanted to discuss with you was you know, not everyone was allowed to learn to read. Well, that ranges from place to place. Um, in Particularly in New England um, and in the Northeast in the colonial period, literacy is very, very high. About 94% of the people could read. Uh, part of that is that they were encouraged to read because they were Protestants who believed that you should yourself understand the Word of God, that you should be able to read the Bible yourself and interpret what it means for your own self. And thus it was really important that you, you be able to read. Um, and most people could read, and most people could write in some fashion. Uh, in the Northeast, even uh, slaves were encouraged to read. Um, in the South, there were more slaves than there were uh, uh, free people, and uh, there were more slaves than there, in the South than there were in the North. Um, for the most part in the colonial period, they didn't prohibit people from learning to read, but they didn't necessarily encourage it so widely in the South. Um, and they didn't necessarily encourage people to write 
as much as they might encourage them to learn how to read. But again, as I said, there were there were we we often think that people couldn't read in the colonial period, and really that's not the case. In many cases, their ability to read. Uh, there were more people who had an ability to read then than they might have an ability to read today. So as as time went on, there were more and more prohibitions against teaching slaves to read. Uh, particularly, there was an event in 1831 where a slave by the name of Nat Turner uh, rebelled and uh, convinced some people to rise up and to violently overthrow their uh, masters. And he actually killed a number of people in uh, a number of uh, plantations in Virginia. And that scared slave owners a great deal. And uh, they, they put down that rebellion. And they also then prohibited anybody from teaching slaves to read and prohibited and punished slaves who did know how to read. And that prohibition was in place for uh, 20 years. And that was in, in place again throughout the South. Uh, it was not a prohibition. By that time, m- many of the states in the North had uh, abolished slavery, and they were not necessarily uh, 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 stopping uh, black people from from reading. Um, but uh, but that that was definitely the case in the in the in the in the South. But again, in the colonial period, there wasn't so much a prohibition as there was a, 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 a difference in how much people were encouraging people to read. Gosh, there's so much there's so much to know about about reading, and it's it's incredible. Just even you know from really from the beginning of time until today, what what we what we read and how we learn is is just so so incredibly important. It's a very important skill. It's a very empowering. It helps people to um, uh, understand their their world, understand themselves. It opens up all kinds of possibilities because when you can read, you can read all kinds of things, and it often is a indicator of how people um, can grow uh, their own lives. They can become more educated and and wealthier the the better they can read um, our own founder we were founded by a printer named Isaiah Thomas and he learned to read by literally setting type uh, as a printer's apprentice and he attributed his ability to read to his ability to become a wealthy person he became a very important printer and publisher and one of the wealthiest people in America in his time period. And he, you know, clearly attributed that to his ability to read right well. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, gosh, thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us all about this. Oh, well, I'm, it's my pleasure. And we uh, uh, check out the American Antiquarian Society online. We have some exhibitions about uh, that online. We also have a um, a uh, website about our our founder called pa- uh, PatriotPrinter.org, which has a, um, a a a video about uh, um, Isaiah Thomas and his indenture, uh, the document that helped create him as a printer. 
And I think people would enjoy looking at that. And you can also explore that indenture uh, through some uh, pretty nifty online tools. So I would encourage people to look at that. Yeah, and I will be sure to share that along with the episode as well. Terrific. hearing from Mr. Moran all about books and how important reading is. So here's a little bit more about what we learned. Back in the colonial era, paper was made out of cotton rags made from old clothes. So the paper was really sturdy, but it was difficult to make and expensive. So most paper was imported. Books were made on hand presses where you had to set the letters one by one, and they were bound with leather. There weren't a lot of books made in the American colonies, but those that were were mostly made in New England and New York. Most books were just imported from Europe or England, though. The first book made in the American colonies was in Cambridge in 1640, and that was called the Whole Book of Bay Psalms. And another early book was a Bible printed in the Algonquin language, printed by a Native American for Reverend John Eliot in 1661. We've talked a lot about how important religion was in early America, and the fact that these were the first two books just proves that even more. Books were very rare and really important, but it was worth it for people to be able to share psalms in the Bible and other religious things. There were no libraries like we have today, but wealthy people had a lot of books and they would sometimes share. Schools had libraries for students and people would share their books with each other. Every family would definitely have their own Bible and an almanac. Most people would also have things like Shakespeare's plays or classical poems, and these were always really treasured. Like we talked about earlier, most books were religious, but there were some books like we know of bestsellers today. One was the story of Mary Rowanson, who told her story of being captured by Native Americans, and that was maybe the first American bestseller. The first novel published in America was published by Benjamin Franklin. I bet you've heard of him. In 1741, he published the English novel Pamela. It was a really popular book. As we get closer to the American Revolution, political printing becomes really important with things like newspapers and pamphlets for people to share their opinions, and we'll talk about that more as we get closer to that time. A lot of us think that people in colonial times couldn't read, but actually most people could. Again, a lot of that was for religious reasons. People felt like it was really important that they could read the Bible and to teach other people to read so they could read the Bible too. In New England especially, even slaves were taught how to read. In the South, there weren't really rules against teaching slaves how to read in colonial times, but they weren't really encouraged to learn how to read either. Later, that would change, unfortunately. Because as you learned in this episode, reading is so important. Reading is one of my very favorite things, so I loved learning more about it. How about you? Do you like books? What are some of your favorites? Your parents can tell me on social media. My Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter are all Growing Patriots. You can also visit growingpatriots.com to find more about me and the Growing Patriot books. I'll also have videos, links, coloring pages, and other things about reading there. Remember to subscribe and rate the podcast and tell a couple of patriotic friends about it. I can't wait to see you next time. Goodbye. They freed us all from tyranny. Risked everything for liberty. And they fought so we would be America, land of the free. America.
Thank you.